Thanks for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you, your wallet, your future. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Speaking of making more money, coming up in a half hour, there's a way more and more people are earning extra money just off of what they love and what they know. I'm going to tell you about potential moneymaker for you in just 30 minutes. Clark.com is our website. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. And we have off-air advice available for you nine hours a day, Monday to Friday. You can see how to get that off-air advice on the homepage of Clark.com. That, if I didn't say it, that off-air advice is free. I am disturbed to tell you that there's a new report in one of the medical journals about how many medication errors there are now. Not the ones you expect where somebody's in a hospital and they're given the wrong medicine. That we know happens a lot. But this is where you administer the wrong medicine to yourself. And when people do that, wrong medicine, wrong dose, whatever, one out of three end up in the hospital. So you're taking a med to deal with a chronic condition or to make yourself feel better because you have an ache or pain or headache or whatever, and the result is you could end up worse off in the hospital. So the number of medical errors have roughly doubled in a decade, you know, the administration of medicines to ourselves. And I need for you to think through this. If you're taking multiple medications, look at the apps available for your phone, the devices available. You know, when I reported from CES, I told you on the air about apps that are available now or devices that make sure you're taking your meds, the right meds, the right dose, and all the rest. And then there's the low-tech way with people you use who are taking more than three meds a day who use those pill things where you put them in day by day and you fill your pill thing. And right now, knock on wood, I take no pills for anything I take two asthma meds that you take as sprays, but I'm not taking any meds, which is good. And I'd say I probably take 10 generic ibuprofen pills a year. So I'm pretty medicine-free. And Joel, you are half my age. Something like that. that. Think about that. that. I've lived twice as long a life as you have. How many prescription meds do you take a day? Zero. Yeah. See, that'll change. (laughs) I got my two prescription asthma meds. But whatever system you need, whatever works best for you, do it. And one thing I want to emphasize, just because a medicine is over the counter does not mean that taking too many of them will be harmless. 
You may or may not be aware that acetaminophen, if you take too much of it, can cause severe in, uh, and potentially irreversible harm to vital organs. So please be aware of this and be careful and be safe. Mark is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Mark, you want to talk about your kids. Yeah. What's going on with your kids? How old are your kids? I got uh, twin 18-year-olds heading off to college here in about a month. And, you know, looking at... uh, What's it like getting it all done at once? (laughs) Well, we have one more, so... Oh, okay. (laughs) Got a 12-year-old coming behind them, so we, we got one more coming. All right. Well, how can I be of service with these college-bound teenagers? We've been trying to figure out and been going back and forth the best way to utilize the, the monies we have saved. And, um, you know, we've got a couple 529s for, the, for both of them with, uh, and some help coming from outside. But we're, as going into the first year, we were wondering what's the best way to do it should we go ahead and, because we have to do this federal form every year for them now, uh, you know, stating how much money they have and whatnot, um, is it better to, to go ahead and, you know, wipe out as much of the 529 so it's not there next year or it's at least lower next year when we have to fill out their, their federal form? Yeah, so this is, if you've been looking around and you've been looking for the right answer to this, and you haven't seen it, it's because there's not one. (laughs) Because it is so specifically situational. So your your money you have in the 529s, do you own that account? You own two accounts, I guess, one with each of your 18-year-olds as beneficiary? Yes. Okay. So as far as how that's computed as part of the FAFSA, you were expected... That doesn't hurt you a lot for for financial aid at all because you're only expected to use a very small percent of your assets for your kids' college. On the other hand, if the 529s were owned by the kids, then in a lot of financial aid formulas, it would be very heavily penalizing well, them for they, eligibility. They, they do own them. I'm sorry. So each kid owns the 529. Because normally the way they work is you're the owner and the child's the beneficiary. How certain are you that the kids own them? Now that you say it, I could tell you both their name and my name's on the on the, uh, the, the, the report I get. I don't know whose name's on top and whose name's on the bottom. Right, so that you want to look at because normally the way they there's only one owner and one designated beneficiary. So... I would say if it if yours is like 90 probably 95 99% of them you're the owner with them as beneficiary so you would not have a specific need to spend down that 529 quickly because right. the advantage with that money being tax free money is the longer it stays in there and hopefully continues to earn the more tax free money you have to spend on the teenagers college later on in college right and as far as financial aid it doesn't cause a great deal of harm right so i would not look at doing a spend down to try to make your situation look better 
for the financial aid aspect of it? Well, the way I've looked at it, read it, they, for the financial aid, it's a, they say it's a smaller percentage they look at the parents' situation? Exactly. So if a kid has a lot of assets, if either of the twins have a lot of assets in their own names, like brokerage accounts or custodial accounts that were set up for them at a bank or credit union or whatever, that money very heavily counts on financial aid and it would be wise to spend any money that is in their names or in a custodial of theirs first in order to improve their picture for financial assistance later. Okay. Got time for one small question after that? Sure. Grandma wants to donate, you know, over ten but less than twenty thousand per year. What is the best way to take that money and apply it to them? Is it for her to write us a check and us pay to the college or to pay directly? Really to the makes that doesn't matter. Usually what a grandparent will do is they will pay the college directly for the expenses. And historically grandparents have done that in families where family dynamics are different in every family. But a lot of right. times they'll do it because they're worried that the money might not make it to the college given given to their adult <laughs> kids that are paying where they're paying for the grandkids. So it really yeah. it, it, as long as it's less than fourteen thousand a year, it doesn't matter. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, up to 14000 no, I'm saying giving the money to you. If paid right. directly to a college, as I understand it, that doesn't even figure into gift tax. Okay. So these are good problems to have that you're describing yeah. to me. just want to make sure we're not doing something to harm, you know, because you know, one of those is a private college, and they go pretty in deep into your finances. Sure. And by the way, each deal. private college can can come up with their own methods of determining what they feel is need for your kids. So it's not like just because you do the FAFSA that every school will then treat your 18-year-old's picture of financial need the same. Each can do it in their own way. Javier is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Javier. Oh, hi, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. appreciate it. I'm glad to be here with you. You have a situation that I have experienced in my own life. Okay. What's going on? So um, my dad has been um, taking out some, trying to take out some additional credit and loans, and um, he's, he's kind of struggling with his short-term memory, so sometimes he'll do it, and then I think he goes back and tries to find a good deal again. And um, at this point, he doesn't really need to do any of that. His uh, finances are kind of taken care of, and we have him on a budget. But he still is trying to do this on his own. With, and I think it's uh, it, he's not making very good decisions. This is so hard. You know, my late mother, um, we went through a progressive dementia with her, and we had to more and more restrict how she handled finances till she couldn't handle hers at all anymore. And it is a very uncomfortable conversation how many siblings do you have uh, i have two two of the brothers and one of them actually has the financial power of attorney at this point okay so you're already taking those right steps 
Um, does your dad have a checkbook anymore? Yeah, he does. All right. So I would suggest that uh, you as siblings get together and then uh, either one of you or better all of you, if it's, if it's practical to do so, sit down with your dad and explain to him that he's just not going to be able to carry a checkbook anymore or use one. Yeah, he's a little stubborn, so that seems a little difficult. I, I know, I know you want to meet stubborn. If you had met my mom while she was alive, you could really meet stubborn. <laughs> and we had to do it simply by force of will, you know, that your dad trusts the three of you, doesn't he? Yes, I believe he does, at least two out of three. All right. <laughs> In baseball, that would be a good batting average. <laughs> Um, so if there's a level of trust, I think that uh, particularly the two that he really trusts need to just lay it out to him. And they may need to do so again and again if there's some short-term memory loss. And it doesn't get easier from here. I just want to tell you honestly, Javier, having experienced it for my mom's dementia period was 16 years from diagnosis to continually progressive or regressive, whatever you call that, dementia. And we had to have uncomfortable conversations with her a number of times over the years. Okay. And so this is not a single conversation. One thing we did as kids, there are four of us, is we had um, conference calls among us routinely, not like every week, but whenever something would come up that one of us would notice, it was like a red alert kind of thing. Or a yellow alert that we saw, ooh, mom did this, or mom did that, or I'm worried about mom doing this other thing. Uh, One day, our mom got uh, in her car when she still had one and ended up lost, not having any idea where she was trying to go or where she'd gone from. And that was when we had to take her car from her. And so it's all different kinds of things that you'll, uh, you'll have to deal with as siblings, and I think with this, you just you don't want to end up in a position where you got to go get a you know a court action against your own dad to take away freedom from him. You want to do it as much as you can as a family unit, communicating, and you won't be perfect at it, but communicating what changes in his freedoms you'll need to make. Chris joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chris. How are you? Yes, hi, I'm great. How about you, Clark? Great, thank you. You have been hearing a pitch about how there's an esoteric special kind of whole life insurance policy that is magical and can make Um, you rich. Right, pretty much. And did you hear this pitch from a salesperson or on the internet or from an ad or what's the story, how you found your way to it? Well, actually, he is a certified financial planner claims to be a fiduciary and has a CPA firm that did my taxes. And that's where I heard about it. So I am unalterably opposed to using life insurance as an investment. Okay. Because the expenses involved in it in a life insurance policy are so gigantic that it is an extremely inefficient way to save money, and it's pitched a lot as a way for you to do tax-free investing or tax-advantaged investing. 
Was that how it was explained to you? Basically, what they say is that you pay for the premium, but then you pay extra, which they word that money as paid up additions. And it apparently it builds dividends, and then you can actually pull money back out of the account you to use as a tax-free loan. Right, right, right. That's that's the standard pitch I've heard through the years. I'm surprised that this individual is a fiduciary. Maybe this individual is, but that is not mainstream advice. And I would encourage you to really be cautious before you get involved in using life insurance as a supposed way for you to do extra great tax-free investing. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so that you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our main web address. Clarkdeals.com is where you go to find the latest, greatest bargains to help you stretch every dollar. So I talk a lot about how to take the money you make and make it work for you. What if... You could make more money. So I've got something that is a fast-growing opportunity that enterprising people are taking advantage of, taking advantage of knowledge you have, experience, or just having lived in one place a long time, special skill you have, whatever. And there's an opportunity for you through the most unusual place Airbnb.com. Airbnb is a website that people go and they rent a room in somebody's home or they rent their condo or apartment or house when they're going on vacation or going somewhere for work or whatever. But the people at Airbnb trying to be more all-encompassing came up with an idea that has absolutely exploded in popularity. And it's where when you go on a trip, allowing you not just to stay in a local residence instead of an impersonal hotel, but to immerse yourself in local experiences. And I'm looking right now on Airbnb because what they call it is experiences. You go to Airbnb dot com slash experiences or at airbnb.com you can just click on the the experiences button there are all kinds of things that are posted here all over the united states all over the world so go around and do a photography tour of a city and learn how to take better pictures do kite surfing have a tour of architecture of san francisco um Go do all kinds of athletic activities, sports activities. And there are a zillion of these. And you can see them by area. So it's just where you're looking to stay. But the big thing is this is a money-making opportunity for you. If you have skills or knowledge or experience or are really personable and you got something that you can offer in the marketplace, you can make money. You set your own price. People review you just like they would on Yelp or TripAdvisor. And you're able to, to earn 
some part-time money, or in some cases, a full-time living because of the skill area that you have. One of the most fascinating things about this is this is completely a libertarian kind of thing where you post your skills, people give you a try, people review you. And I know reviews are skewed very positively overall, but these are the highest cumulative reviews I think I've seen on the internet with most every activity earning a full five stars. So the individuals doing this, it's like a calling of the herd. If somebody doesn't do a good job and they're getting bad reviews, they're going to fall out of this system. But the people that are doing a great job are getting great reviews. And there are, there are all kinds of activities. I remember when my middle child played soccer and she was trying to make the team at her school, we were able, I'm trying to remember where we found it on the web, we were able to find a college soccer coach who earns extra money doing lessons for people. And my daughter learned so much from those lessons and made the team. And here's somebody supplementing his income as a college coach and making money, and it works for everybody's schedule. There's so many things like that where you can make some meaningful money and give people a better experience. So you got a skill, particularly if you live in a tourism-oriented area, See if you can turn it into cash and not have to work for somebody else. Joe joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joe. Hey, how you doing? Great. Thank you, Joe. Joe, you want to talk about when is it a good idea to borrow money for a car? Is that true? Yes. Um, we're both retired, my wife and I, and we have a, a fair amount of money in our 401k and our Roth. And we're trying to decide if we should take out about 30000 out of that account and buy a car outright, or if we better leave it in, it, you know, it grows somewhat each year, and just take out a loan and buy a car. Well, are you a member of a credit union? Not right now, no. Right. Unless you join a credit union, you'd be better off taking the money out of one of your retirement accounts to buy that car. Because okay. Credit unions write car loans at such a low interest rate if, if you got a great credit score that yeah, we it have would like be... Plus. Sorry? We have like 800 plus. So if, with a credit score in the 800s, a lot of credit unions will write car loans at or below 2%. Okay, okay. So if you get a rate like that, it's to your advantage to borrow the money and let your investments continue to grow because you'd really have to be having a bad run of luck to earn less than 2% right, on your right. investment accounts. On the other hand, if you go to a bank to borrow money for a car loan, the rates are so, so much higher that it would make more sense to take money out of your investments, your retirement accounts, and pay cash. Yeah, we were also thinking that this might be a good year to take money out because so far this year we haven't taken any money out at all. We'll probably end up taking out about $20,000 for the rest of the year to live on. 
And so what we do take out would be at a lower interest rate as far as taxes go, or tax rate, excuse me. A lower tax rate. <sighs> as opposed to next year when we'll be taking out uh, money all year long. And then if we decide, oh, let's take out another $30,000, that'd be, you know, a higher tax rate. Sure. Uh, I mean, there there is no automatic right answer. The advantage of having money in your investments is it gives you more flexibility with the money moving uh-huh. forward. Are you how much are you in stock type choices in your retirement accounts? What what do you mean? They're in stock mutual funds, stock index funds. Is that Well, the, it's it's I'm not exactly sure. About 60%, yeah. 60% stocks. So we've had quite a hefty run up in the stock market over the last 8 years. Mm-hmm. And so there's at some point we're going to have a correction. Value of your investments is is going to go down some, and that's just the way it works in cycles. So Correct. there is an argument to be made that if you've had a nice run up with your investments, you could take cash out and just pay cash for a car, and then you don't have the monthly car payment. Right. There, but there is no exactly right answer to this but i would say the trigger is if you can borrow money ultra cheaply to buy the car then it would be fine for you to have the car loan then one other quick question i know uh, we're, we're looking at different types of cars and one of the car dealers they said they had zero percent financing for like five years something like that is that truly zero percent well it, it, it is you but you cash? end up giving up potentially a lower price on the car because they will give you usually either the 0% financing or give you a lower price on the car. That's what I figure. So it's not really true 0% financing then. So if you can borrow money, I'm looking at what my credit union, I'm in three, but I'm looking at one of them right now. The interest rate is 1.99% for people with your credit score. That's cheap. Mosley's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, Clark, how you doing? Great, thank you. You have a question about your daughter. Yeah, uh, she's seven, and I wanted to go ahead and get her started uh, on a good road as far as you know, credit and financial, financial responsibility. And I wanted to know how soon is it um, to get her as an authorized user on my credit card. I'm fascinated by your question because I had this question last month from somebody who had a five-year-old daughter that they were thinking of adding as an authorized user. Wow. Um, Most credit card companies don't allow it till a kid's a teenager. Um, Typically it's age 15, although some issuers allow it age 13. Because there's really no reason. They don't want to be in a position where, let's say, you actually have given a five-year-old a credit card and they go crazy spending money and you're mad at the credit card company. And that's why they they try to wait till a kid's got more age on them. I got you. But I would say, based on the maturity of your seven-year-old daughter, when she hits teenage years, if she's really, really seeming responsible, you could go... A step beyond just adding her at that time as an authorized user and give her the card. Some issuers now on a minor child's card 
will allow you to set a alternative credit limit much lower than yours, where you might be able to make the credit limit $100 or something like that, where a kid learns almost like with training wheels how to handle a credit card. So that would be her own card, correct? It would be it would be an additional card on your account. I got you. So, but okay. but what most parents do is their child never even knows that they've been added as an authorized user. But the purpose of it is to give them the ability to build up a credit identity, so that when it does come a time that they're applying for credit on their own, they've got all this time as an authorized user. I should mention one thing though, Mosley, that I forgot to mention, and that is that some issuers do not uh, report authorized users to the credit bureaus, others do. So with one of your, whatever card you would decide in a few years you wanna add your daughter to, you need to ask the issuer, do they report authorized user status to the credit bureaus or not? Because if they don't report it, it doesn't do anything for her as far as establishing a credit identity. But you are really thinking ahead. Stacy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Stacy. Hi, Clark. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. You have a question about uh, paperwork and rental properties. Yes, we have six rentals. Congratulations. And, uh, well, five of them came with when I got married with my husband, and then we turned my house into a rental. So successful on most of them, but we've had them for 20-some years, and so you can imagine the paperwork starts to pile up. Sure. And um, just kind of, because my husband's the type of person that likes to keep everything. The problem and, if you keep everything on a multi-decade rental property is when uh -huh. the time comes that it becomes a triggering tax event like selling a property, you can't find the forest for the trees. Right. So for uh, for the key records you want, you want paperwork of the original basis, and then you want paperwork on things that adjust the basis. So if you had to renovate the kitchen or replace a major component, you keep the paperwork of that but as the years move on older paperwork just of what utility payments were or uh, anything like that those things can be discarded so as you're looking forward looking far back with a 20-year-old property there should be almost no paperwork you've kept that's over the last fifth uh, going back the first 15 years okay so like um um, like garbage payments, etc. I don't even need to keep those. Don't need to keep them at all. Now, okay, for more recent years, I would say for the last few tax years, you do want to be obsessive about details like your husband is. If the IRS ever challenged the way you're accounting for expenses on a rental property. But when you get past a five-year window, the older records, other than those that affect basis, they can be thrown away. You don't need them. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Leonard is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Leonard. Uh, hi, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, I understand you want to ask a question about one of my girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, I was curious about uh, the Wall Street Journal and whether you thought it was uh, a good deal or not. I saw they have some incentives, and then they kind of uh, go away after a period of time. I just didn't know if you thought that uh, the incentives or even just paying the regular price is worth it for the uh, Wall Street Journal paper. So I love... I'll tell you my my three girlfriends in print. They're the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and my absolute favorite, the Financial Times of London. Okay. And the value of reading these newspapers, it sounds so dated, but the depth of knowledge you get from those three is so wonderful. And I know there okay. are people who look at everything in America through a political prism, but I'm talking about content in these three is so thorough. It gives you such a deep knowledge over time, not not in a day or a week or a month, but such uh-huh. a level of knowledge about how the economy works, how business operates, how finance works, and I think it's invaluable. The Wall Street Journal is not as good of a newspaper as it used to be, but it's still a good newspaper. But for financial news, the Financial Times of London and its coverage of the United States, their U.S. edition, is vastly superior to the Wall Street Journal. Okay. But I I read both of them every day. I read the Financial Times first. I I read all day long. But I, I have... You know, you're not supposed to have favorite children, but I do. I read the Financial Times first, then the Wall Street Journal, then the New York Times. Okay, gotcha. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for taking my call. Sure, and give it a try. And um, and the the how, are you interested in finance mostly, or just general business, or which? Uh, probably just general. Uh, I like good opinion articles, and I kind of like keeping up on current. Topics and then I'd say the Wall Street Journal would probably be where you'd start. It'd be graduating to go to the Financial Times, which don't get between me and my Financial Times. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. I appreciate you tuning in to The Clark Howard Show. And if you'd like more fun stuff to listen to by podcast, well... We have our Empowerment Zone. This is where you get to hear the stories of people that have done amazing things, either in overcoming hardship in their lives or things they've done to accomplish. Go to Clark.com slash Empowerment Zone.